This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast for everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level. You came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, longtime resident of Shanghai, China, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, and Chinese blogger, and recommended by four out of five doctors. My co-host is John Pasden, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of All Set Learning. The Chinese Grammar Wiki and Sinosplice.com, and putting the man in Mandarin since 1998. On this episode, John and I will be talking about why Chinese is taught the way it is. Can we learn Chinese the way a child does? And how do you keep up your Chinese? Later, we have an interview with Josh Campbell, a public relations executive in China, and his experience of learning Chinese in the 90s and how learning Chinese has impacted his career. Including his experience with managing the crisis of the Singapore Airlines crash of 2000 in Taiwan. All this and more. Let's get to it. My name is Jared Turner. Hey guys, I'm John Pasden. On our interview today, I,、uh, we interviewed Josh Campbell. Now he went and studied Chinese in the 1980s, and he had this professor. As, as he described him, he was famous in the Chinese language education sphere. He went through the full four-year program, but it wasn't until two years into the program、um, he had the opportunity to attend a summer Chinese program at the University of Indiana, and that experience really changed everything for him because it, it turned Chinese from this real slog of pounding rote memorization, and it was really engaging to him. And, and I've I've talked to a lot of learners, and John, it'd be interesting to talk about this because there are a lot of people I think I've met out there who have had some similar experiences to Josh. Yeah, a big part of the problem is that people have not been learning Chinese in large numbers for very long at all. So、um, actually, the field of teaching Chinese is quite young.、Um, we haven't had a lot of innovation and development、uh, until really the past ten, twenty years, mostly the past ten years. And、uh, and so when you look at the methods that these teachers are using to teach Chinese, a lot of them quite closely resemble the way they teach Chinese children. So L one, you know, their first language. The problem is those kids that are you know so called learning Chinese, they're already fluent in Chinese because they grew up, you know, they acquired it as their native tongue, and so then they put more emphasis on things like Chinese characters, you know, reading and poetry, and all these things that you really don't need as a first language student. You know that's that's true. I my kids、uh, went through a Chinese school in Shanghai、uh, up to fourth grade, and I saw this. You know the the textbooks that they used in in elementary school.、Um, you know there was a reading every day. They they were supposed to write. You know they learned maybe five to eight new characters every day, and every night you're practicing just rote memorization, writing these characters out. Now you have to do that if you're really going to learn how to write and and solidly acquire that language. But that's a little different, right? Because those Chinese kids, they already speak the language, so now they're learning to, to read it. But for non-native speakers, they're typically learning to speak and write at the same time. And and plus, the native kids, they have all this rich cultural surroundings. So you know, their parents are speaking Chinese at home. They're watching TV, and so they've already been exposed to Chinese fairy tales and stuff. So、uh, it's like they're taking this mindset. Of how they learned Chinese, and and maybe they've even taught Chinese to kids in in elementary schools, and then they come trying to teach foreigners, you know, in America or in, in other programs, and, and they they bring that whole experience and that that I, I don't know the right word because is that baggage 
you know, into the classroom. And the kids that, that learn and excel in that kind of environment, they're not doing it because of the methods. They're doing it in spite of the methods. Oh, you think so? Yeah. Yeah, because um, if you're learning Chinese as a second language, especially as an adult, um, you have this whole new set of sounds you have to learn. Uh, you have to learn pinyin. And uh, it really makes a lot of sense to not even try to learn characters for a while. But, you know, a lot of programs, they start cramming characters down your throat in like the second week. It's not necessarily the best way to go. What, how, how long do you think is appropriate before you start learning characters for maybe like a, a true beginner? Well, you know, we're all about personalization in my, my company for, you know, training. So I would say it depends. Mm-hmm. But um, you definitely need to first master pinyin. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. help things to be learning all these characters when you, when you don't really know your pinyin or you haven't really mastered, like, you know, what really is the difference between X and SH? Or you can't even make the tones properly? Because, you know, those are all things that Chinese kids don't have to learn at all. So they have the bandwidth to, to just absorb the characters and the higher level vocabulary because they've got, that, they've got that stuff all down pat. Recently, I was talking to a teacher from Iowa. Uh, his name is Grant Brown, and he's been teaching um, high school Chinese. Uh, and actually, I've, I've interviewed him for an article that we're that I'm writing. It's going to be very interesting. This is forthcoming papers, but his experience is that a lot of students get turned off from Chinese, and they a lot of people drop out of the programs because they don't notice progress. That it's easy to get turned off because it's so difficult. Um, especially at the beginner level, and because there's all these new things to learn in, in the whole writing system. And, and I think that's pretty accurate because I've talked to lots of teachers all over the United States and in England, and, and retention in a Chinese program can be challenging. And I think it's compounded. It, it, the language is difficult, but it's also compounded when you have teachers bringing in L1. Uh, and, and L1, for, for our, our listeners there, L1 is uh, first language first language learner. So an L2 is a second language learner. So uh, you have these teachers bringing in these L1 methods and trying to uh, teach L2 learners. And it, it turns, it, it can create a lot of difficulties for students and it makes an already difficult language uh, more untenable. Yeah, to give an example, in my first year of uh, my Chinese studies uh, back in university, uh, the teacher used uh, Chinese poetry as um, Not just a way to expose us to the tones, but actually a way to test us on the tones. Oh, no. So we had to listen to the poetry, and we had to write the correct tone. And, you know, if you didn't, like, really learn it, then you would get it wrong, and you'd get a bad score on the quiz. And I just couldn't do it. Like, it took me a while to really wrap my head around the tones. So rather than actually learn to differentiate the tones, I realized that the three poems all had a similar tonal pattern, and I could, like figure out which poem it was and just make a slight change to the pattern. And so I could get 100% on the quizzes without learning the tones. Wow. You know, the, in- the insight about those, those poems, in uh, the first grade, first semester, uh, towards the end of the first semester, is the first time I saw a Chinese poem in one of my kids' UN, their Chinese language book. Now, this, these are the books that native kids are using to study Chinese. And it was a very simple poem, but I found out later, I actually looked up the original one, and they actually simplified it for the book. Maybe every two weeks, they introduce a poem. And they can be very uh, challenging 
they'll use very difficult words. I remember I learned the word for duckweed or something. And I've seen it happen in classrooms where the teachers are like, oh, the kids, they need to understand culture. And, and you know, this is how I learned. This is one of my favorite poems when I was a kid. And so they want to share that with the kids and they want to share with the people they're studying. But man, I, I actually wrote a blog article about this once uh, because there was a question on Quora. It said, will studying poems, Chinese poems, help me to learn my Chinese? And well, well, giving that away, what do you think, John? <laughs> It'll help you to learn Chinese poems. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Is poetry Chinese what you're after? Because, uh, you know, some people are really into that. But it won't necessarily make you a brilliant conversationalist in Chinese. And the good thing is, let, let's think about, do you, do you read poetry in English? And, it, and if you think, is reading poetry in English going to help you become a better English speaker? And I think the answer is kind of apparent. Not really. Uh, it, it might take on Yeah, it. I mean, there are exceptions. And if you really like poetry, okay, then you like poetry. But uh, the connection is not super strong, I would say, for most people. Agreed. And usually it's low context because there, it's, it's talking about something abstract or kind of literary. Um, and it's not very long. There's not enough repetition. You know? But the thing about poetry is you want to play with the language. You know, that's what art is, right? And you kind of have to really know the language before you can play with it. And, and my take on that was uh, in, in doing, uh, you know, homework with my kids in, in, a, in, uh, in their Chinese school was that I actually learned to appreciate some of these poems. The meaning was just kind of deep and you sometimes characters had double meanings and, and, and there was like this sometimes a deep, I don't know, a depth of appreciation that you could have in reading a poem. Now, I couldn't read these poems just like offhand. So, I mean, I'm using, you know, Placo. I'm using little dictionaries to make sure I understand, to try to understand it. But once I did, oh, yeah, wow, there was, there's like, it was, some of it was rewarding. But my take on this was that learning, like reading poems in Chinese, it's not a great way to learn the language, but it's, it's a way to appreciate what you do have. Yeah, to enrich a good foundation. But you don't want to add it to a shaky foundation built on sand. That's right. It's, it's a reward, the cherry on top. Yeah. Now, a word from our sponsor. One of the most effective ways to build fluency is by reading in the language you are studying. It gives your brain the context it needs to understand how everything you are learning works together. To do this, you need Chinese books you can read. If you haven't already, check out the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series with Level 1 using only 300 basic characters. You'll find easy-to-read novels in Chinese based on stories you love, like Sherlock Holmes and Journey to the Center of the Earth. Buy them today at mandarincompanion.com or on Amazon. So getting back to the topic of L1 learners, one of the things that I've noticed a lot with uh, parents of kids in Shanghai um, you know, they're talking a lot about their kids learning English, their kids learning Chinese. It doesn't matter where they're from. They're all interested in both of those languages. And um, they frequently think about, oh, he's three years old now. He needs to start learning Chinese or he needs to start learning English. But, you know, babies have this big, long, silent period where they're listening to everything around them and they're really sinking it in. For some reason, people, they often forget that. You really do need to hear the language quite a bit before you can accurately uh, reproduce it. And so for some reason with Chinese, people start learning it. It's like, here, listen to this tone two times. Now you should be able to make it. Oh, and now you also have to be able to write the right mark on the pinyin. And oh, also here are the characters that go along with that. Like you need time to soak it in. And I feel like some people are, they're too hard on themselves because, um, you know, the resources or the teachers that they're using, they, they're just too over the top. 
I also seen sometimes that like Chinese or just language English classes, Chinese classes for like you know toddlers, like eighteen months old, you know, and and yeah, that's I think that's great, um, but. At that point, you're just exposing them to the language. It's not that they're really going to be reproducing a lot of language. Yeah, so that's the thing about babies. They are soaking it in, but they're soaking it in all day, every day. And that's what makes a difference. It's not like an hour a week is going to make a huge difference. And and one thing that kids are good about, which I'm always impressed by, is figuring out what they really need and what they don't really need, what's kind of extraneous from a survival perspective. What's relevant. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, relevance thing carries into you know, our own lives, right? I remember one time I was learning Chinese. I was living here in Shanghai. I had a flat tire on my bike. And so I, I needed to go get my bike fixed or get the flat tire fixed. But I didn't know any of the words. So right then I went out and I studied like the word for flat tire, fix, how to even say tire. Um, I didn't even really know how to say, I don't think I knew how to say electric bike. I had an electric bike then. And, um, and so I, I went around and then I found a guy and I was able to use the words I had just studied and that was super relevant. And I, and I remember that I never really forgot those words. Now those, that really stayed with me because it was like I studied it and it was directly applicable to my life and what I was using right then. Right. So in the, in the, uh, in the example of kids, it's not like what word is relevant, but it's like, is this language even relevant to my life? Like I had a friend who his son uh, lived in Shanghai. Uh, so he was uh, from uh, North America. I talked to the kid in English. Um, the mom talked to the kid in Chinese. Um, but the kid had more exposure to Chinese, of course, growing up in Shanghai. And uh, the dad was noticing, oh, he keeps speaking to me in Chinese. And he just kind of got impatient or... Um, you know, he was a little frustrated, and he would just start talking to the kid in Chinese. And, and you know, w- once that starts, then the kid is like, all right, wait a minute. Why do I have to learn English? Everybody's speaking Chinese, including dad that used to speak to me in English. It's like, this English is useless. And, and kids will all do this. You know, I think the inverse of this, too, is that is about being consistent. Because, like, we can, you can spend a lot of time with kids, and I think this even even maybe uh, this really is any person. You could spend a couple of years like really learning the language, and then um, if you step away from it for a while, you can really lose a lot. Um, a great example is is my my son uh, Colin. Uh, he went through three years of a kindergarten here. Um, he spoke fluent Chinese. Uh, he even spoke uh, quite a bit of Shanghainese. And then uh, my family moved back to the states uh, for school. And uh, he was back in the States for nine months. I'm telling you, he was like native-level English, uh, close to native-level Chinese. His English actually had a little bit of trouble (laughs) when he was back in the States, uh, um, although he he was fluent in English. After nine months, just our family situation, I was still here in in China coming back and forth, and he said he wanted to come back here and uh, and live back in in China for a semester and go back to his old Chinese school. Now, he he had started first grade here, and so he's coming back for second grade. After nine months, this eight-year-old boy who had lived his life in China since he was seven months old, only lived back in the States for nine months, he came back and he was so far behind in his Chinese. He was coming home from school like, Dad, I don't know if I can do this. You know, it was so hard for him. Just nine months. Wait, he was behind on his schoolwork or he was behind on just understanding everyday language? Behind on understanding everyday language. Wow. And it took him about a month to really kind of catch up because it was in there, you know, it, it was in there, 
But I'm just, I think it was interesting, just nine months. Yeah, because his brain's like, well, don't need this anymore. And starts like, you know, packing it up, putting it in the boxes, shoving it to the back, you know, just ready to throw it out with the garbage. That's right. So it's like, I think the commitment to like, especially learning the language for kids, it's not good enough just to, you know, oh, let's see, you know, we'll stop studying when they're eight or 10 or something like that. They'll, They'll lose it. Yeah. So how does this all tie back to the whole issue of adults learning Chinese as a second language? Well, the relevance. So, like, for example, the poetry. You know you're not going to be spouting poetry to the Chinese guy at the dumpling shop when you go to Shanghai. Uh, like, for me personally, I'm not that into poetry. I don't hate it, but, you know, I just I can't get into it, and I can't commit to it. It doesn't feel relevant. Not only do I not want to learn it, but for that reason, it just won't stick. Whereas if I'm learning things like, you know, you know, something that's useful, then then I actually want to learn it because I can imagine. Oh yeah, when I'm when I'm in China, I'm going to use this, and I'm going to have adventures, and I'm going to be communicating with people, and it's going to be awesome, right? That's the kind of thing that sticks. I think that it begs the question of really how do you keep up your Chinese? I think that's really kind of maybe how we're doing this. Is like because frankly, the amount of people who actually have the opportunity to come to China and study Chinese, it's relatively few, and uh, there's a lot of Chinese learners who will never have the opportunity to come to China. But it reminds me of um, of someone I, I, I used to work with. His name was Andrew, Andrew Hu, and uh, he's from Toronto. Now, his experience was is his parents are Chinese. He actually he grew up in China until uh, he was about four years old, fourth or fifth grade, and then he moved to Toronto. His Chinese, his fam- he spoke Chinese at home, but he moved into a pretty much an aside from his parents speaking Chinese, he moved into an entirely English-speaking uh, environment. And his younger sister pretty much lost all of her Chinese. She was just one year younger than him. And so she could kind of somewhat conversant with her parents, but she couldn't read. She couldn't do anything like that. Andrew, on the other hand, what kept his Chinese was he read. He found comic books in Chinese, and he read those. And so because he, he found something that was interesting and relevant to him um, in, in the written language, he actually kept his near native level of Chinese and specifically his characters. And that goes on. I mean, you, you know, we're, we're huge. You and I, we are really big on literacy because uh, that's, that is one of the keys to, to learning the language and maintaining the language. So even if you aren't able to come live in China or Taiwan or another Chinese speaking place, being able to read uh, at, a, at a level of comprehension will do war on wonders to help you keep your Chinese up. And we hope that you're reading something that you're interested in. And then after you read that stuff that you're interested in, you have a chance to talk to someone about it. You know, that's what brings it all together. Absolutely. And of course, you know, the Manor Companion series is a great series for that. You know, ding, 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 ding. Um, but, but in reality, that, that it's totally true. Uh, and in fact, I've met some people before who had studied Chinese um, years ago. And they were really rusty, and they were like, uh, and they weren't sure they could, they, they were having a hard time conversing, but they could still remember some characters. You know, I've showed them one of our books before, it has only 300 characters in it, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I can do that, but they open up, and they can actually read it. And, uh, and you know, they start reading the books, and, and the Chinese can come back pretty quick. Okay, now it's time for rants and raves. Okay, I have, uh, today I have a rant. I have a lot of rants, but today one of my rants is the concept of click your way to fluency. There are a lot of like technology apps and assists, and it's kind of like, oh, here, you know, here are these these characters, and you can just click on them so easily, and it pops up the pinyin and the definition, and and now you're going to learn Chinese. 
And I get so frustrated by this sometimes because it's like, uh, oh, and I think I've actually seen that. It's like, click your way to fluency. That's not going to work. When, when you know that you can just like click on a character and, and just instantly have uh, see the pinyin or something, your incentive to actually retain that in your memory is, goes like way down. And even if you like, uh, you kind of start to struggle. That, that temptation, just go click on that. It, it's just, it, it's just really hard. And so I think you know that's even why we we did the Manor Companion series, where it's like, okay, there are, there's no pinion above characters. It's almost impossible not to read pinion above characters. That always kind of grinds my gears a little bit. And so uh, uh, be careful of that. I mean, those things can be helpful. I think you know they they have their place and their time, but when you you're relying solely upon clicking your way to fluency, it's just it's it's going to be that one of those crippling crutches. And specifically when you're trying to read a book, right? Amen. Like people, uh, they sometimes want to take like our Manor Companion books and put them in something that puts like pinion over all the characters or puts pop ups for every single word. It's a trap. And like I can understand like uh, the motivation. You know, you really want to read the story. Um, but it's better to use those kinds of tools for like kind of lower level stuff. And then once you've got the foundation, the basic vocabulary, you know your 300, 400 characters, then you really take the plunge and, and you start a journey into true fluency. And, uh, and it's a lot more satisfying too. All right, so now I've got a, a rave. It's to counter your rant. Oh, fantastic. And that rave is the Zhongwen plugin for Chrome, the browser. Actually, I love that. <laughs> Isn't that just like exactly what you were just talking about? Yeah, but I'm not clicking my way to fluency. Oh, because you don't click, right? Yeah. No, all right. So I, the way I hover my way to fluency. Yeah, hover. <laughs> the way it works in case well, you tell don't us, know. tell them what it is. Tell them what it is. Okay. So uh, just search for Jongwen in the Chrome browser uh, store, and it downloads this whole dictionary. And then when you turn it on, you mouse over any Chinese text on any website, and it gives you a in little, the Chrome browser. In the Chrome browser, and it gives you a little pop up with the the opinion and the English translation. I wouldn't recommend this for reading an entire novel, but when you're trying to read or make sense out of a website that's a bit above your level, you know, whether it's Taobao or whether it's, uh, you know, some or Taobao. tech news site, it's always Taobao. Or Taobao. It's yes. not Taobao for me, man. <laughs> uh, it's a tech website or, you know, it's a uh, cartoon, uh, you know, comics with uh, text. It doesn't work on images. I don't know. Anyway, it's it's really useful. And if you don't have it, you should definitely try it out because that can make the difference between whether or not you're you're willing to even open up an all Chinese website or whether you're just gonna cower in fear for another couple of years. John Wen for Chrome. Hey Josh. Hey Jared. That's Josh Campbell. I had the opportunity to interview him in Shanghai. He's serving what appears to be a life sentence in China. I've been living in Shanghai for the past 10 years. And prior to that, I was in Taiwan for 10 years. So altogether, 20 years in greater China. I grew up in Lincoln, Nebraska. Josh has been working in public relations his whole career, something made possible by his relentless pursuit of learning Chinese. Many listening will be able to relate on how he wanted to give up many times, but his persistence resulted in opportunities he could not have predicted. Why did you even decide to start studying Chinese? I mean, back then as well. I mean, what year is this? This is 90s? Well, okay. So the, the longer end of the story, I'm not super proud of this because it's a little bit embarrassing because I've actually been studying Chinese for longer than I let on to some people. A Taiwanese woman moved to my hometown in Lincoln, Nebraska in high school. So I started studying way back then, in fact. Oh, really? Yeah. 
she she moved to to Lincoln, Nebraska, and they launched the Chinese program there in in in, in my high school. So you had a Chinese language program in high school. Yeah. And what, in, what in year Lincoln, was this? In Lincoln, Nebraska. So I graduated college 96 and high school 92. So Wow. So at this time, though, like Japan was like the yeah. the hot economy. Everyone was learning Japanese. Yeah. But you had an opportunity to learn Chinese. Yeah. They, they sent around a survey and they said, you know, so we're going to be offering Chinese. Would you be interested in taking it? Otherwise, it's French or Spanish. And, you know, I thought, well, this sounds exciting. Something different something really unusual. So, and I thought that there would be opportunities with China based on some magazines I'd read or something. And and so I, I picked it up in, in high school and started studying. Were your parents supportive of this or was this oh, just absolutely. kind of, was this kind of like just your own idea then? Something you wanted to do? I, I, absolutely. They were very supportive. We had, a, in high school, we had a, a, a China club and I was the president of that. Oh. And so I knew pretty early on that this was something I wanted to do. And so I chose my college based on having a good Chinese program. But that's, that's another story as well, because it certainly wasn't as easy a path as I thought it would be because high school, I, I didn't take it seriously enough. It kept me interested. And that was the most important thing. My, our teacher from Taiwan took us to Beijing and to different cities around China for two or three weeks before college. Oh, wow. What year was that? So that was 92. Oh, a lot yeah. was going on in 92 it, yeah. as well. Yeah. It sort of reaffirmed my my belief that this would be something interesting to do. We were in Hong Kong for a day too, and that was mind-blowing. So after you went to Beijing, I guess that made a big impression on you. Oh, huge. I really thought that I needed to do something different and unusual in order to uh, stand out and get... I was being practical, but kind of a dreamer at the same time. I thought that I had to do something different in order to get a good job. And that, to me, was helping American companies negotiate with Chinese companies. And I knew I needed to have good Chinese to do that. Hmm. In my Chinese class at University of Chicago, I was the only freshman that was picking it up. Okay, so there was American-born Chinese and Malaysians and Singaporeans. Heritage learners. Heritage learners. And then there were Caucasian graduate students, basically, that... Uh, were my classmates, and it was a very competitive environment. The professor was an elderly gentleman from Beijing. Oh. Very tough. Very, very tough. He made girls cry in class. Wow. um, When you'd have to stand up and recite something in Chinese. And he was very strict on the tones. And there was a language lab that we had to go to and record how many hours per night. And he he would read that every, every night and say, Oh, Josh, you only spent 30 minutes last night. (laughs) <laughs> in the language lab, this kind of thing. And he was really intimidating. Some people loved him and some people hated him. He and I didn't get on so well, to mm-hmm. be honest. Uh, and the textbooks were all Chinese history in Chinese, oh. which I was like not grooving on so much. I, I, I wanted to study the Chinese history in, in English, and I was doing that also. So some of the vocabulary and so on that we were learning was not useful. By the time I made it to Taiwan, I didn't know how to say napkin or, you know, where's the restroom, these kinds of basic things. During that two years, did you all have the same The same teacher? professor. The same, same professor, professor yeah. Oh, really? So he ran all the classes in the program? He was a big deal. Um, wow. Famous, and he reminded us that he was famous regularly. <laughs> I knew that I wasn't doing well enough compared to the, the graduate students or um, the American-born Chinese or Malaysians or Singaporeans. So I applied to a summer program, and that was life-changing. The professors were younger. Uh, they'd written their own material. 
And their own material was really relevant to me as a college student. There was a a, uh, a lesson on Beavis and Butthead uh, and, <laughs> and whether or not them setting fire on the cartoon could influence people to do that in real life and whether there, there should be a responsibility of the creators of Beavis and Butthead. Things like that I thought in Chinese was interesting to read. So these young, ambitious – and so I, I, I went from being the worst in my class at University of Chicago – uh, to being the best in the class in Indiana. And I went back to Chicago really confident and feeling better about myself. And my prospects and my professor was really happy with the progress I'd made. And he, he thought I would never make it, basically, and, <laughs> and communicated to me on a daily basis that he thought I wasn't making it. Well, that's really interesting because you had a, a, a two very different experiences and two different outcomes. So how would you contrast the difference between what you experienced with your one professor at the University of Chicago and um, this other program at the University of Indiana? I mean, it was like night and day because the stuff that I was learning in Indiana was useful and inspired and wasn't learning Chinese history in Chinese and about the different dynasties, taught in a very boring fashion by an elderly, no offense to, to him, God rest his soul, but um, <laughs> gentlemen, compared to the, the energy and the exuberance of these young professors at in Indiana. And we also had to sign a contract at Indiana that we weren't going to speak any English with our classmates. And we, we all took that very seriously. So we were different foreigners using our, you know, really broken Chinese <laughs> with one another every day. And that was good practice. It, it forced us to really practice everything and think in Chinese. And I think that's really interesting, uh, that story, because we see a lot of certain materials and books. And sometimes there's teaching methods which draw on, I think, really traditional concepts of rote memorization. And, you know, you got to focus on the classics and the histories. But it, a lot of that material doesn't seem relevant to learners. Exactly. That's exactly right. The, the Beijing professor, I can thank him for forcing me to practice tones. I, I can remember distinctly in, in some of the earlier classes, like the word Zhang, Mr. Zhang, and the different tones. And you can accidentally be saying Mr. Dirty. And so he repeatedly would embarrass me in class and say, are you calling me Mr. Dirty? And I'd be like, no, sir, I'm not calling you Mr. Dirty. I'm trying to get the tones right. So the tones, he instilled that tones are important and that you can be saying the wrong thing uh, when you mean one thing and you're saying the other. But in terms of the content, it was not very applicable to real life, unlike the Taiwanese professors that had written their own stuff. Okay, so you went to Indiana. Uh, and went through the program. You went back to Chicago. How much longer did you study before you finished school? And then what happened after that? So I knew that even after the Indiana program, if I wanted to, to achieve my dream and help American companies negotiate with Chinese companies, I had to continue to improve my Chinese. So I learned in a Chinese history class from a different professor that there was a, a Taiwanese school, uh, National Taiwan Normal University, that was offering scholarships. So I said, well, I'm going to have to really go for that. I didn't know of any mainland Chinese schools that were offering scholarships. I knew my folks weren't going to foot the bill. <laughs> so I applied. My Beijing professor decided that he would step up and help write me a recommendation. Was this the professor you, Mr. Zhang? Yeah, 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 the, yeah the, the one that was concerned I was calling him Mr. Dirty, yes. <laughs> so he wrote you a recommendation. He, he did, and it helped me get in. I was one of two University of Chicago students that was chosen to, to go to National Taiwan Normal University for a, a one-year scholarship. That was, I, I just knew I had to go, otherwise there was no way that I was going to be able to achieve this, this, this dream that I had. Okay, so Taiwan, 
Yeah. What how, how that how long was that? Uh so it was one year. It was pretty stressful the first 3 months for sure. I mean, it was a real big adjustment. Hadn't studied m- almost anything about Taiwan. Knew almost nothing about Taiwan except that it was Chinese speaking and Chinese people. I didn't know how to use chopsticks. Oh, at, really? At that point in time, and <laughs> silverware was hard to find at most restaurants. So I had to learn that fast, or I would have starved. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I learned how to use chopsticks quickly. School was very intimate. It was like three or four students per class. So yeah, it was it, overall after after the first three months of a big transition. It was it was good. I learned a lot. I'd say I learned more in, in the one year in Taiwan than I'd learned in, in the four at Chicago, for sure, because you, you had to survive. Most people didn't speak English. Okay, so, yeah, Brayden, how was your Chinese after high school, then maybe after a couple of years in college, after college, and then going into Taiwan? So so high school was embarrassing, going going because I remember taking the, the proficiency test entering University of Chicago because I said, well, I've taken a little bit of Chinese and it had mm-hmm. been, been a few years. And it was embarrassing with the same professor. He said, ni hao ma. And I was like, even the most basic Chinese, I didn't come away knowing. All my high school Chinese classes served to do was get me interested. Mm. And keep me interested and inspire me. And then the the trip to China continued to inspire me. And I, I knew I wanted to do that for college. And then college, the first two years were really rough. After Indiana, things got a lot better because I worked very hard at that summer program. And I, I'd say that going back to Chicago, things were, were still good, but I wasn't at a level that I could compete with the Singaporeans or Malaysians or the, the Western graduate students. But I, I did well enough that, that I was able to, to get the scholarship, so that was very fortunate. At, at Shaddai, I think I did pretty well as well. I think Taiwan was a great place to learn Chinese in that day and age. Um. At this all along, you've been studying Chinese. Uh, you've been st- how about your character study? When I was studying in school, I was studying the traditional characters, and that was challenging. And I I enjoyed it. I, I, I it gave multiple layers of meaning to the, the Chinese to be studying the Pinyin as well as the traditional characters. And be, people sort of gave me a choice, but I didn't realize that the distinction that in Taiwan and Hong Kong people use traditional characters and in mainland China, you know, there's so many more people and they're using the simplified. So something I was interested in, in, in finding out a little bit about. You went to the University of Chicago, you had this very difficult professor, and you went through four years. You could have quit you could have dropped out at any stage, but you didn't. You stuck with it. Why did you stay with it, even though it was really hard and discouraging, and you probably had someone really, I guess, putting you down quite a bit? Oh, totally. I mean, my understanding from talking to other students of his from University of Chicago is that he always would choose one student to really pick on and beat on, uh, sort of as an example to the rest of the class that you should study harder. And I was that guy. I met another guy that was that guy, and so we we sort of commiserated with one another and shared our <laughs> our bad experiences. And I guess it comes down to being kind of stubborn. <laughs> I just didn't want to quit, and I, I had this dream, this big dream. I thought at first it would be easy, and then you know I realized later that it's going to be very very hard, uh, and I just wasn't able to give it up. But surely you must have felt like giving up at times. Oh, I felt like giving up many times, many many times 
almost daily. So classes were early in the morning. I'm still not a morning guy. And so just struggling to get up and then knowing I was going to be abused by my Beijing, elderly Beijing professor was, <laughs> and it, it brought down the rest of my grades as well, for sure. Having to study the characters and the tones so much on a nightly basis. I mean, it, was, it required a lot of dedication and it was very frustrating to not be progressing the way I wanted to until the Indiana experience happened. So I'm going to guess here, it seems like the first two years were probably the most challenging. And then after Indiana, that affected your outlook, I guess? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't recommend that Indiana program more. I don't know if it's still as good today as it was then, but I couldn't recommend it more. Look at, looking back, how has that decision to learn Chinese and, I guess, struggle, how has that affected your life and your career? Mm, I don't think I could function in China with, without it. I know there are people that do um, and do well, but I think the struggle sort of to learn Chinese has kind of made me tougher. There's some suffering that's involved, but that there's a, a payoff at the end of the day that things will get better. If you could go back and do any part of it differently, what would you do? <laughs> I have friends that regret going to University of Chicago, and <laughs> I, I, I try not to be one of those guys, but that would be regretting such a huge number of years of my life. And and it did lead me to Taiwan. It did lead me to Indiana. So it's hard to regret that, but, but it was a lot of suffering with that professor. I guess in some ways I, I've thought to myself, what would have happened if I'd gone to another school that had a good Chinese program? But, you know, uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. So I don't know. It, it's, it's hard to regret the decision to go to University of Chicago, but maybe that, maybe if, if I could do it again, maybe I would have chosen a different school. Yeah, at that time. Yeah. I'm sure they have a great Chinese program these days. <laughs> no, I think that's very interesting. It's, it sounds like the impact that one teacher can have on your life. Oh, yes. I, I totally agree with that. One teacher can have such a huge impact on people's lives. I, I really believe that, both negative and positive. And it, and it also sounds like you did have teachers who made a very positive impact on you, too. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I can't thank them enough. They gave me a whole new sense of self-worth because I was feeling really awful about myself. Those first two years from being sort of beat down by this, this professor, then I realized if, if I studied hard, I just needed to up my game and keep on keeping my nose to the grindstone and that things might work out. They did. So I think it's interesting here is this talking about your experience. I can feel the lull, you know, like mm -hmm. kind of I can feel that oppression, you know, mm -hmm. the uh, discouragement, right? But also it sounds like there is a lot of, uh, you know, I mean, look at you now. You did it. And today you can, you, you can do this. This is a language that's learnable. Definitely. I mean, it, it, it's learnable. I think just one has to face the fact that it, it is going to involve some suffering. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't have to be to the degree that I suffered. It doesn't have to be. If you have a good professor or a teacher, then that certainly helps a lot. Somebody enthusiastic. One thing I, I like about your experience there is that uh, I always like to talk about breakthrough moments. Can you think about any times where you were like had a breakthrough in Chinese? Mm. All of a sudden things clicked or you just got something or just understood I think a lot of it for me was a ritual, having a ritual, uh, a daily ritual. For me, after class was over, there was a coffee shop in Indiana that I went to. It was my ritual, and I, I would just study for hours there. Called the Rensible Spoon, uh, which I guess it still exists. Uh, it was a very, it was like a house that was converted to a coffee house. 
I just spent so much time there, and I, I, I always felt like with the caffeine, with the coffee, and studying the Chinese, it was just very inspiring. And um, I felt like I was making a lot of progress there, and then I'd go back to class, and, and things were just a lot more positive. The, the professors were a lot more positive people, and I wasn't being picked on anymore. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was good. Uh, so the, I, I'd say that the combination of the, the Bloomington program and then that coffee shop really inspired me as well. So it sounds like being surrounded in a positive environment. Yeah, absolutely. It makes all the difference in the world. I've been to your home in Shanghai. Mm. We've mm. known each other for many years. And I know in your home you have a newspaper clipping where there was, I think, some big PR issue with an airline. And you're there on the front page in the background with the CEO or something. I mean, do you have any other highlights like that about your career? Maybe even talk about that experience. Sure, there. sure. I think that still was one of the most memorable experiences I've been a part of and one of the highlights of my career. And that was, it was a tragic experience as well. I was doing crisis management on the Singapore Airlines crash in Taipei. What year was that? 2000. So it was a number of years ago, but it still uh, stands out in my memory. I worked for a PR agency and they were not our client at that point. Uh, I was handling Boeing, but because it was a Boeing airplane and the airline was Singapore Airlines, so they and they only had one one PR person in all of Taiwan to handle this this crash, which you know unfortunately resulted in, in the deaths of a number of people. They asked us to help out, and so I was there giving them advice on on how to handle, the, especially the international press, which were coming a lot to Taiwan to cover this story. You're Chinese. How did that play into that? Yeah. So at that point in time, there were seven major media in Taiwan. And there were seven senior reporters that covered aviation. Not only was I helping my local Taiwanese colleague manage those seven reporters, but also then a lot of these international media were coming, like CNN and so on, uh, to cover the event as well. So these Taiwanese reporters did not speak English, so I was having to deal with them in Mandarin and build trust with them and make sure that they knew that you know I was a straight shooter and that we were going to be honest with them. Uh, so having Mandarin was totally crucial. Otherwise, it would have been impossible, I think, if I'd been having to work through a translator or depend exclusively on my, my Taiwanese PR colleague to communicate what I had said. That, that would have been rough, really rough. Wow, I can imagine that. a stressful experience that would have been too. Absolutely, absolutely very stressful because, you know, you're dealing with life and death and there were uh, naturally very angry relatives. In that picture, actually, so one of the relatives of one of the victims of the crash, she sort of came to the press conference and, and berated the CEO of Singapore Airlines who had flown in to apologize and take responsibility for the crash. She's standing over him and uh, screaming at him, and he stays seated and calm and continues to apologize. What was she saying? She was speaking in Taiwanese. That's a problem, too. Like That's, <laughs> that's, that's an issue throughout China. The local dialects, it's, it's such a complicated place because there's the national dialect, Mandarin, and then there's the local dialect, and people can switch back and forth and not always in a positive way. So in that case, the woman was speaking in Taiwanese, and they, they were trying to get compensation, which Singapore Airlines did compensate the, the victims' families for sure, but she, she was very upset and, and demanding compensation, essentially, from, the, from the, the CEO and saying his apology was not enough. That's got to be such a difficult situation. I can't imagine. Yeah, it, it was 
yeah, it was very strange. And, and for her to, you know, she, she really busted in like that and we didn't know what she might do. And so I'm sort of standing in the background going, wow, this is pretty nuts. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been really interesting to hear all your story, this journey of learning Chinese. Nowadays, we have so many people learning Chinese. What advice would you give to someone who's starting to learn Chinese today? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I, I don't know where the, the best programs are in, in, in the mainland, but I would say come. <laughs> come and experience it. Get absorbed in it. Uh, live and breathe it. If you can use the Internet, of course, that's, that's a gr great way to start. But if you, know, if you really want to continue to improve at a much more rapid rate, I think you have to be in the environment and be forced to use the language on a daily basis. And find a good teacher. Find a good professor. Find somebody that you can trust and believe in uh, that's passionate. I think passion is really important, too. I didn't highlight that earlier, but I think having passion both as a student and as a teacher is really essential. So I have one last question for you. Okay. Would you rather fight one horse-sized duck or a hundred <laughs> duck-sized horses? Uh, one horse-sized duck. Why? I think that I'm just sort of imagining how many there would be and that it just it just would be an impossible situation, but you might have a small chance against the horse-sized duck than if there were so many of those smaller ones overwhelming you. <laughs> <laughs> overwhelming force. <laughs> hey, Josh, thanks so much for participating. Thanks, Sarah. Thank and thanks you. for being on our show. It's been it's really great talking. And to hear about you, I've got a really interesting story. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity, and it's been great talking with you as well, Jared. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmate, and teacher, cousin, distant relatives, pen pal, in-laws, your postman, dentist, and that one guy named Tim. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at mandarincompanion.com. The You Can Learn Chinese podcast is produced by myself, Jared Turner, and I'd like to thank my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pazden. See you next time. Mm -hmm.